Okay, we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, and uh, I'll uh, read that and we'll pray and we'll get into our study together. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it uh, has guidance for us in every area of life. Uh, we, we thank you that uh, it teaches us about you. It's the content of our doctrine. We thank you that it corrects us when we're going on the wrong path or when our doctrine is faulty. And we thank you that your word trains us, teaches us, to live righteously so that we can serve you righteously. Uh, Lord, thank you for the privilege of studying your word, of, of uh, communicating it to your people. Uh, thank you for these good people and their, their uh, desire to honor you with their lives, their desire to live for you, not just on Sundays, but to live for you every day of the week. I thank you for the good people of Del Rio Bible Church. Uh, please bless their lives, Lord. Bless their families, their marriages. Uh, Lord, thank you for them. Lord, thank you for your son. What a magnificent Savior he is that he willingly went to the cross to take our place. That he took upon his own body our sin and our shame and the death that was rightly ours so that we could have the hope of eternal life by putting our trust in him and his finished work at Calvary. Thank you, Lord. Please guide us as we study this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I thought we'd start with a quiz. Okay with everybody? Should we take a vote? No. Uh, got a question for you. Who said, in this world nothing is certain except death and taxes? Anybody know who said that? No. Okay, we had one person in the uh, other service. Uh, Benjamin Franklin said that. Uh, he said, the whole quote is this, our new constitution is now established. Everything seems to promise it will be durable, but in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And uh, Will Rogers, who was able to turn anything into a, into a funny quip, he said this, the only difference between death and taxes is that death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. <laughs> Our topic today is taxes, that's why, uh, or I should say government and the believer, and that's why I shared those things with, with you. You see, the attacks on Christian, on Jesus rather, are escalating. The attacks on Jesus are escalating. This is the passion week, 
and the attacks are getting stronger and the attacks are getting closer together as they try to find reasons to put Jesus to death. So the attacks on him are escalating to bring him either into conflict with the nation of Israel or to bring him into, and its leaders or to bring him into conflict with the civil authorities, to bring him into conflict with the authority of Rome so that they might have him put to death. It's in that context that we have Mark chapter 12 and this teaching about, or this question, which is meant to trap Jesus, a question meant to trap Jesus, bringing up the issue of the believer and government, the believer and government. Now, that's a hot topic, I think, in any generation of believers, and it seems to me it's a really hot topic in our generation, the Christian, the believer's relationship to government, responsibility to government. So we'll be talking about this that this morning, and I can be pretty sure that I'll make nobody happy this morning. Uh, it's kind of like preaching about marriage uh, or preaching about submission. You never make anybody happy uh, in those, and it's a, it's a challenge. So uh, that's going to be one of those this morning. But that's what's happening. Uh, that's the background to what's going on in this passage uh, is this attempt to catch Jesus, this attempt to get him into trouble either with the people of Israel and the leadership of Israel or to get him into trouble with the government of Rome. Now, before we get into the details of this scripture, and, and let me tell you kind of the outline I'm following this morning. First of all, in chapter 12, verses 13 to 15, we have the issue raised, the issue of taxes and government, the believer's responsibility to government, or the person's responsibility to government. And then our second point is uh, Jesus' answer, which is found in verses 15, this latter part of verse 15 to verse 17 of chapter 12. So we, we have the issue raised, of, of the government, and we have the Jesus answer to the question, and then I'm going to spend the last part of our time together this morning, uh, probably close to half of our time together this morning, on two questions. The first question is this, what does the Bible say beyond Mark 12? What does the Bible say about government? How should we as Christians respond to government. And then the second question that we'll be uh, taking up at the end of our message is how should we respond to an oppressive government? How should a Christian respond to oppressive government? Uh, I think these are, are uh, important topics for you and I to study together today. And I'm going to give you some scriptures as we go, and I'm going to give you some passages to look at. So I hope that you'll take what we're doing this morning as a starter for, for you to form some opinions of your own based on the Word of God. And that's the, that's the operative phrase, based on the Word of God. There's so many opinions about Christians and government, so many opinions about the Bible and government, and they're, they're based not on the Word of God, but they're based on a person's political views 
We need to be careful about that. We need to be sure that whatever view we hold of government, it is a biblical view, not, not uh, our, our favorite hobby horse. Uh, somebody, Jerry Bridges, uh, he's a great writer, he said it much better than I can. He said this, in thinking about Scripture and its application to our lives, we need to be sure we're thinking God's truth, not our own opinions. Can I say that again? In thinking about Scripture and its application to our lives, we need to be sure we're thinking God's truth, not our own opinions. You see, the reason I raise that is because that's exactly what's happening in this passage of Scripture. The Pharisees and the Herodians, who we'll meet in just a moment, they let their political views overrule the Word of God. They let their political views overrule the Word of God in their lives. And uh, that's what's happening. And I pray that as you and I look at the Scripture, as we try to understand the uh, believer's response to government, we will have a scriptural view, one that can pass scriptural, scriptural muster. Well, we read in chapter 12 and verse 13 of the book of Mark, Oh, and by the way, let me give you the parallel passages. The parallel passages uh, to this, so in case you want to study the others, they don't really add much to Mark's account, uh, but you ought to know what they are. Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 to 22. Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26 are the two other passages that this incident is recorded. So it's Mark 12, verses 13 to 17, our topic, our study this morning, and it's paralleled by Matthew 22, 15 to 22, and Luke 20, verses 20 to 26. All right, uh, we're reading, later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Now, later is later after some of the Attempts. Remember, the attempts are escalating. The attempts to trap Jesus, the attempts to, to get him into trouble with the Jewish nation or with the Romans uh, are escalating. And so sometime later, uh, this incident occurs. They sent. Now we ask ourselves, who is the they in this passage? And I think we find that in 11 and verse 20. Uh, seven, where we read, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Now, so I think the they in our verse, verse 13 of chapter 12, is the religious leaders of Israel. The religious leaders of Israel. The leadership of Israel gathers together the Pharisees and the Herodians to send them to Jesus so that they can trap Jesus in his words. Now, this is really interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. They are religious leaders in Israel, but they hated each other. But they made common cause to try to trap Jesus. So while they hated each other in other ways, they put their hatred aside because their hatred for the Savior was so great that they worked together. 
they worked together to trap Jesus. So later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians. Now the Pharisees were the religious party and the Herodians were the political party. Primarily the Pharisees were religious. Primarily the Herodians were political. The Pharisees objected to the tax. Uh, the tax that we're talking about here is a poll tax. And I'll share some specifics about it in just a moment. But the tax that they're asking Jesus about was a, a poll tax, a head tax. Every person of a certain age, male and female, had to pay this tax. That's the tax that we have in mind here. Uh, it was a tax levied by Rome. It was a tax levied by Rome, which is one of the problems here and one of the sticking points and one of the reasons the Jews hated this tax. Now, people generally hate tax. Is there anybody here who loves taxes? Come on, raise your hand. Don't be afraid. Oh, we got one. <laughs> uh, generally, people hate taxes. They don't like taxes. But what made this particular tax so odious to the, to the Jews was that the, the tax was levied by the Romans and, pay, and paid in Roman coinage. The tax was levied by the Romans and paid in Roman coinage, the denarius. And that made it particularly odious to the, to the Jews. So later these Pharisees and the Herodians, the Pharisees objected to but paid the tax. You see, they were opposed to any form of overlordship. They were opposed to any form of another government overruling the government of Judea. And so... They, were, they objected to the tax, but they paid it. The Herodians on the other side supported the tax because it was in line with their support of foreign rule. They wanted foreign rulers over Israel. They made money by having foreign rulers over Israel. And so the Pharisees objected to but paid the tax. The Herodians supported the tax and they paid it. So... That's the, the background here. Um, a little bit extra about the background. Herod the Great ruled this area. Herod the Great ruled this area. And uh, before his death in AD 4, 4 AD, he divided his kingdom into three parts. And that's the background to why the Jews came under taxation by the Romans. What happened was he divided his kingdom into three parts. One of those parts, ruled by Archelaus, was Judea and Samaria. He failed in his rulership, and Rome, Rome had to intervene. Rome had to intervene because Archelaus failed in his rulership. R Rome sent then a procreator, backed up by Roman troops, who were directly under the Roman emperor. So that's how this came about. Taxes were paid directly to the emperor, and there was violent, even uh, there was opposition, but even violent opposition to the tax. One leader named Judas the Galenite called the people to rise. 
and said that God would favor them only if they resorted to all the violence they could muster. So that was how much they hated the Romans. That's how much they hated the tax, which was a reminder that they were under Roman rule and weren't under their own rule. By the way, there were three taxes. I told you that the tax in question in chapter 12 is the head tax. There, were all, there was also a ground tax that was one-tenth of all grain, one-fifth of all wine, one-fifth of all fruit. And then there was an income tax, which was 1% of income. So we had the ground tax, the income tax, and the tax that is being talked about here in Mark 12 and that is the head tax, the poll tax. All men 14 years old through 65 years old have to pay that tax. All women 12 years old through 65 years old had to pay that tax. So that's, that's the background here. So the, they sent the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians, to catch Jesus in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. Now, now you're going to love this uh, if you're not familiar with this passage and you're reading this for the first time. you got to love the way they butter up Jesus, don't you? Uh, the way they, they, they kind of schmooze Jesus a little bit here. Uh, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men. Because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. <coughs> now you know, and I know, that they don't mean a word of that. They don't mean a word of that. They just are simply trying to butter up Jesus. And so they say, you pay no attention. Uh, one writer called this hypocritical flattery. It was hypocritical flattery. Uh, as I was growing up, I don't know if this was an Italian thing or if it was a uh, 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 common saying, but they, the saying was, be careful when somebody's patting you, on the, patting you on the back, they may be looking for a place to stick the knife. So I don't know whether that, <laughs> that was an Italian thing or uh, I, since my heritage is, is Italian. Um, but at any rate, they were trying to flatter Jesus. Uh, you pay no attention, they said. And literally that phrase could be translated, you do not look at the face of men. You do not look at the face of men. He wasn't a man pleaser. That's what the scripture calls a person who uh, tries to butter up or hypocritically uh, flatter somebody else. They calls them men-pleasers, or respecters of persons. Jesus was no respecter of persons. The teacher that the scripture teaches many times that you and I should not be respecters of persons. We shouldn't treat people uh, according to the way they dress. We shouldn't tr treat people according to the way they talk. We shouldn't treat people according to the way, the amount of money they have. We shouldn't treat people according to the influence they have. Remember, that's what James in James chapter 2 warned the people, the believers to whom he was writing. He warned them about that. Don't do that. If somebody comes into your assembly and they're dressed out in fine clothes and they're obviously rich 
Don't run and make sure, hey, I'll see you get a really good seat. You'll get the best one in the house. We'll seat you on the back row. Best seat in the house. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we wouldn't put them on the front row, right? Uh, so James says, and then somebody comes into your assembly and they're dressed shabbily. They obviously have no money and they have no influence. And so you say, come on in, uh, you're welcome, but you have to sit on the floor or sit on the stool next to my chair. We're not supposed to be re respecters of persons. Jesus was not a respecter of person. He did not look at the face of men. That is, he did not look at people. Peter learned that lesson in Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. I'll, I'll let you look that up at some time that's convenient for you. Acts 10.34. So they flatter Jesus. Uh, we know, they say, that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? Literally, what they're saying is, is it lawful? Uh, according to the book of Mo, uh, the, uh, the, the law, is it permitted according to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verses 14 to 15? Is it lawful? Is it lawful? Is it permissible to pay taxes to Caesar? Interestingly enough, here in verse 14 and 15, and later in verse 17, the idea of paying taxes, the word for pay uh, literally means to pay back in full or to pay a debt. What Jesus is saying by the words he's using here is that taxes are considered a debt that a person owes to the government for the services that a government renders. Taxes are not considered a gift, but taxes rather are considered a, a debt that somebody owes for the privileges that government provides. So, should we pay or shouldn't we? <clears throat> Let's see if a lozenger helps that. Should we pay or shouldn't we? Should we take care of this obligation or shouldn't we? And on top of it, remember the Jews hate the Romans and therefore they are, uh, uh, hate this tax. They hate this tax. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he said. Bring me a denarius. <clears throat> Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Now, it's interesting to know that the denarius was the only coin you could use to pay this tax. The denarius was a Roman coin. On it was uh, the image of Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar at that time. On the other side was an inscription that, uh, that said, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. And then uh, with the picture, it said chief priest. It was a claim to divinity, a claim uh, for emperor worship, that was the coin. 
And it's interesting when Jesus says to them, why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin. Do you notice that they objected to paying the tax because they had to pay with a Roman coin? They objected to the tax because they had to use a coin that had Tiberius's image on. They had to pay the tax with this Roman coin that made the emperor of Rome deity. And so they objected to paying the tax. But when Jesus asked them to produce a coin that he could use as an illustration, somebody pulled one out. Isn't it interesting? They objected to it because it was Roman. They objected to it because of emperor worship. But they didn't object enough not to use the money every day. They were tacitly acknowledging the authority of Rome. They were tacitly acknowledging Caesar's authority by using the coin. They didn't say to Jesus, well, I don't think we could find one of those awful coins here. They didn't say, well, it'll take a while. We don't use that filthy money. When Jesus asked them to produce a coin that he would use for an illustration, bam, there it was. You see, they didn't mind using it in other situations. And by doing so, by using it, they were tacitly, tacitly acknowledging Caesar's authority by using the coin. Thus, they were obligating themselves to pay taxes. Now, Jesus asked, whose image is this? Is Caesar's image. What's the inscription? Caesar is divine. They brought the coin. And when Jesus asked them whose portrait and inscription, they said Caesar's. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. <clears throat> give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's? The things belonging to Caesar, the tax, the Pharisees objected to the tax as they, attempt, they objected to all attempts of Rome to intrude in Jewish life. The Herodians favored the tax, as we said earlier. If Jesus said, yes, they should pay taxes, he'd be siding with Rome against Israel, and if he said no, he would invite Roman retaliation and he'd be considered a rebel against Roman authority. The question is meant to make Jesus look bad in the eyes of the Jews or to provide a basis for charging him by the Romans. Well, Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God, what is God's? What are the things belonging to Caesar? What is he talking about when he says to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Well, he's talking about obviously taxes, <clears throat> but taxes <clears throat> was their debt to the Roman government for the benefits of peace. 
and the benefits of stability and the benefits of services rendered. Today, in the way we consider things, it would be uh, our responsibility, our payment to government for police, for fire protection, for national defense, for government salaries. It would be payment for those things. Those would be the things belonging to Caesar in that day and in our day. But Jesus sets a limit on the state's legitimacy and shows that loyalty to God is to be above all. Jesus is not saying that Caesar and God are the same thing. So there, there is a legitimate area where we have a legitimate responsibility to government. There is an area where you and I have legitimate responsibility to government. Uh, the, but the other side of the coin is there are things belonging to God. And those things belonging to God are things that God alone should receive. For instance, God alone should, re should re receive honor and worship. We do not worship the government. We do not give honor and, as deity to the government or its leaders. God alone is to receive honor and worship. People are God's coinage. You see, you and I bear the image of God because that's what Genesis chapter 1 tells us. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We bear the image of God. And so therefore, God alone is to receive honor. God alone is to receive worship. God alone is to receive obedience. God alone is to receive dedication of one's whole life. Because we are made in his image and we are stamped by his image, God alone should be the one that receives our worship, service, dedication of our whole lives. So there is a legitimate place for government in the lives of believers. There's a legitimate place for government in the lives of believers. But government should never take the place of God. So Christians have a responsibility to the state, but our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus Christ. Christians do have a responsibility to the state, but our ultimate loyalty should be to Jesus Christ. And I think we need to keep that in mind. Now, a lot of times, and we're going to talk a little bit about our response to government as we come to the last part of our half of our sermon. Um, uh, re remember that Jesus is speaking at a time when the Roman government was over the Jews and most of the world. And later on, when we have the New Testament writers teaching and writing the New Testament, they were all under the Roman government. Rome was an extremely oppressive government. Rome was an extremely oppressive government. And yet never do you and I read uh, in passages such as this one in Mark or in passages by uh, Paul or by Peter, Never do we read that they say that we should uh, organize against government. Uh, it's an important thing for us to understand as how we are to uh, interact with government. Uh, I want to give you a couple of passages of Scripture 
which talk about how should we respond to government. How should we respond to government? Turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. There are five things here that Paul tells us about government and our interaction with government. We read, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Six things here, five things here, rather, that we're being taught by Paul about government. We are to be submissive to government because... All authority is ordained by God. Not just certain governments, not just certain forms of government, but all government is ordained of God. Number two, resistance to government is in the final analysis resistance to God. Resistance to government is in the final analysis resistance to God. Number three, government generally opposes evil. These verses are not trying to say that government in some way is perfect. It is not. It is not. But government generally opposes evil. The the fourth thing that Paul is teaching us here is our consciences tell us that it's right to obey government. And the fifth thing here is that uh, God sanctions the payment of taxes uh, We must accept the obligations of being citizens along with the benefits of being citizens. So Romans 13 is one of the central passages in the scripture. If you are to develop a philosophy of government, a biblical philosophy or a biblical theology of government, you have to take into account Romans chapter 13. You have to also take into account Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, where Paul wrote, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. And then also in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, where Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. 
For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. So Titus chapter 3 and verse 1. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 to 7. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Uh, a passage that we don't have time to turn to. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Uh, all tell us that we have a responsibility to be submissive to government. Now, there's a greater principle in the Bible, and I want to just take a minute to talk about this. There's a greater principle in the Bible called the principle of orderliness. The principle of orderliness. Why is it that God has set aside submissive relationships? And there are nine of them that we find in the Bible, at least nine submissive relationships we find in the Bible. Why has God established, our, uh, established these relationships? Because the greater principle is that of orderliness. That is, God is a God of order, and he desires order in the creation he desires order in government. He desires order in our homes. He desires order in our, uh, with our children. He desires order with our marriages. God is a God of order. And there are nine areas where the scripture calls us to be submissive. The first one, all believers are to be responsible to all other believers. You and I are in a, a relationship where we are to submit to each other, uh, all believers to uh, all other believers. The, Christ, the church is to submit to the leadership of Christ. Uh, this, God the Son was in submission to God the Father, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11. Servants are to be in submission to their master, children to their parents, women to the wives to their husbands, uh, young people to... Uh, their elders, uh, church members to church leaders, uh, the believer to government are all part of this doctrine of orderliness that God desires peace and order. Now the last thing we'll spend a few moments on here is the question of how should a Christian respond to an oppressive government? How should a Christian respond to an oppressive government? There are Six principles that we will share here. Uh, the, the first thing we want to observe is that we, what we cannot do, what we should not do in responding to an oppressive government, uh, we should not use violence or revolt. We should not use violence or revolt to an oppressive government. But there are things that we can do and we should do, and there are six of them. And I'll share these quickly with you, and then we'll finish for this morning. Uh, these, by the way, come from uh, one of the men that I was privileged to have a couple of classes with it's in seminary by the name of Dr. Norman Geisler. Uh, he, is a, he was, he's in heaven now, but he was a fantastic ethicist uh, when it came to ethical issues such as responding to government. He was brilliant. And so what I'm sharing are principles that he developed from the scripture. Number one, how can we respond to an oppressive government? 
Number one, we should pray for it. We should pray for it. That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We should pray for an oppressive government. Pray for peace. Pray for government leaders. Pray for Congress. Pray for the Supreme Court. Pray for the executive branch. Pray for state and local officials. Pray for justice. Pray for righteousness. We should first, the first principle is we ought to pray for an oppressive government. I mean, after all, uh, that's 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. That's what Paul's advice was to the Christians of his day. And they were under a, a greater oppressive government than we are under. And uh, uh, they, they, are under, they were under a government, uh, a cruel government. And so therefore, Paul's advice to Timothy in Ephesus is to pray for the government. So the first thing you and I can do and should do, uh, the first way we should uh, interact with an oppressive government is to pray for it. Number two, and I can't emphasize this one enough because I think the church has gone far away from it, not the RBC, but the church in general, and that is to preach the gospel, to preach the gospel. That's the only way men and women's and children's lives change is as they accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. And honestly, the church today is this, uh, it's so disheartening to me. Again, not DRBC, but the church in general, as I look out and see, see the way the church has basically abandoned the gospel as being important and would rather use other means to deal with government and other issues in life. We should preach the gospel Geisler said, we will never transform the world by mere legislation. It needs evangelization. It needs evangelization. Number three, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. We should submit to its authority. Now hold on, because you're, you're having an internal argument about what I just said. You said, well, wait a second, there's got to be a limit. There is a limit. If you hold on, I'll tell you the limit in just a moment. Okay? But generally speaking, we submit to the authority of an oppressive government. Number four, we should exert moral influence upon society. The, the scripture says that you and I are salt and light to this world. So therefore, we need to we, we exert influence upon the world. We exert an illuminating influence upon the world. We exert a, a preserving influence upon the world just by the fact that we are salt and light. We don't become salt and light. We are salt and light. we got to let the salt do its work and let the light do its work. We exert moral influence. The fourth thing, the fifth thing we can do is to work peacefully and legally to change the government and its laws. To work peacefully and legally to change the government and its laws. And number six, we must disobey its when it commands us to do an evil or when it takes the place of God. We must disobey, not submit, but disobey government when it commands us to do an evil or takes the place of God in our lives. That's where we draw the line. That's where our loyalty to God comes first. I have some biblical examples. I'll mention them and we'll finish. Uh, 
In Exodus chapter 1, verses 15 to 21, we have the example of the Hebrew midwives. Do you remember what they were told to do? What were they told to do? Put the, the Hebrew male babies to death the moment they were born. Boy, we haven't gone far from that today, have we? In some areas. Um, what did they do? Did they do it? No, they disobeyed. They disobeyed. They disobeyed government because government was commanding them to do an evil. Government was taking the place of God. And so therefore, the example to you and to me in Exodus 1, 15 to 21, is the Hebrew midwives disobeyed government. Daniel chapter 3. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Who are those three? What do we normally call them? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right. Very good. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were told to worship a golden image, to give honor to, worship to, obeisance to a golden image, and they refused to do so. They refused to worship an idol. And, and you know the result of that. Daniel chapter 6 the people were told they could pray only to Darius, the, the head of the government, the king at that time. And Daniel, who was in the government at that time, told that he could not pray to God. He had to pray to Darius. Do you remember what he did? He went to his house, his apartment, threw open the window, and what did he do? Prayed. He prayed to God. Did he disobey government? Yes, he did. But the principle is we disobey government's commands when it commands us to do an evil or when it takes the place of God in our lives. One more. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. Acts chapter 4, verse 18. When the apostles are arrested because they preach the gospel and then they're brought before the authorities, and the authorities tell them, you may no longer preach or teach in the name of Jesus Christ. What did they say? They said to them, you can decide whether we should listen to you or to God, but we're listening to God. We're listening to God. And what did they do? They went right out and started preaching the gospel again. They disobeyed the governing authorities over them. So what should we do to respond to an oppressive government? Number one, pray for it. Number two, preach the gospel. Three, submit to its authority. Four, exert moral influence upon society. Five, work peacefully and legally to change the government. And number six, disobey when it commands us to do an evil or takes the place of God. War, uh, Charles Ryrie said this, Christ recognized the distinction between political and spiritual responsibilities. Caesar should be given taxes and all rightful political obedience. God should be given worship, obedience, ser service, and dedication of one's whole life. To serve Caesar and even fight for him, the Christian must do. To worship Caesar, he must not do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. This teaching isn't easy. This topic isn't easy. 
And Lord, it seems like in our culture today, we're going to be increasingly coming into conflict and increasingly having to make hard decisions. We pray that above all, as we interact with government, we will act, interact on the basis of your word and not in the basis of our prejudices, that we will act on the basis of what your word teaches and not our political preferences. Help us to be thoroughly biblical Christians, especially in this important area. I pray in Jesus' name.